0: Today, Our reading is 2 Kings, chapter 21, 1 through 18. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah, and he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. For he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal, and made an Asherah as Ahab king of Israel had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. And he built altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem will I put my name. And he built altars for the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering, and used fortune-telling and omens, and dealt with mediums and with... Necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. And the carved image of Asherah that he had made, he set in the house of which the Lord said to David and to Solomon his son In this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen out of all the tribes of Israel, I will put my name forever. And I will not cause the feet of Israel to wander any more out of the land that I gave to their fathers. If only they will be careful to do according to all that I have commanded them, and according to all the law that my servant Moses commanded them. But they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. And the Lord said by his servants, the prophets, because Manasseh king of Judah has committed these abominations and has done things more evil than all that the Amorites did, who were before him, and has made Judah also to sin with his idols. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies. And they shall become a prey and a spoil to all their enemies, because they have done what is evil in my sight and have provoked me to anger since the day their fathers came out of Egypt, even to this day. Moreover, Manasseh shed very much innocent blood till he had filled Jerusalem from one end to the other another. Besides the sin that he made Judah to sin, so that they did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> now the rest of the acts of Manasseh had all that he did. And the sin that he committed, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the king of Judah? And Manasseh slept with his fathers and was buried in the garden of his house, in the garden of Uzzah and Ammon. His son reigned in his place.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, good to be here with you this morning. How's everyone doing? Good. Good. <laughs> good. Sleepy a little? I don't know. I, I was tired after the retreat yesterday. Felt like I needed a nap after that, but uh, that was not happening. Um, and that's good. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we'll go ahead and jump into the text. Gracious Heavenly Father, uh, Lord, we uh, are privileged to come before you, uh, to be called by your name, to be called to you, uh, to know you, to love you, God. It is a privilege to worship you, Lord. Uh, Father, thank you for your presence. God, thank you for your people here. Thank you for your word. God, I ask that you would humble me. I ask that you would humble us, Lord, Uh, I am a weak vessel. God, would you please use me for your glory? Would you use all of us uh, to glorify your name? Help us to focus on you. Help us to fear you and not fear man. Help us to love you, Lord. Uh, We love you and we praise you, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So I think we can all recognize that there's something particularly damaging about someone who's supposed to be like a good moral example, uh, but they end up being just wicked and corrupt. So whether this is a politician, leader in the church, teacher, whatever it is, someone who's supposed to be trusted, someone who's supposed to be a, a good example of of morality and character, when this kind of person... Um, turns their back on all that they stand for when they end up being corrupt and wicked, I think we can see that that has a damaging effect. Um, what would you guys call this? What would you call this kind of behavior? Just throw it out, whatever comes to mind. Betrayal, Betrayal. yeah, that's exactly, uh, that's exactly what it is. Uh, when people are looking to you uh, to care for them, to lead them, and uh, you just act contrary to everything that you've said you would be, that is betrayal. Um, I think about this in the context of Christianity. I'm sure uh, a lot of us know people who have turned their back on the faith, who have deconstructed their faith, right? That's just another word for people who have left the faith, turned their back on the faith, uh, this is a, a kind of betrayal. It, it hurts, it can uh, be damaging, it can create a damaging effect. Um, I remember back when I was in high school, like early 2000s, 2007, I was a senior, um, there was a, a popular book called I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Uh, I never read the book, I'd never plan on reading the book, uh, but it was pretty popular in my youth group, like right here on Kadena. Really popular, Um, you know, boys and girls were reading it and a bunch of my friends were like, Vince, you gotta read this book, it's so good. And I'm like, you guys are idiots. (laughs) I am a senior in high school and I'm about to go to Christian college. I'm looking for the one guys, I'm not gonna read this book. Um, Now, this guy made a bunch of money he got really popular in the, our little Christian subgroup. He got very famous, um, very successful. And a couple of years ago, turns out that he walked away from the faith, turned his back on the faith. He left his wife. All right, so he didn't just kiss dating goodbye, he kissed Christianity goodbye. Um, that has had an aftershock in, in some contemporary Christian circles. Uh, I think about this with pastors as well. You know, unfortunately, we way too often hear about pastors falling, uh, being involved in some sort of scandal, cheating, pornography, whatever it is. Um, Most recent one that comes to to mind, or the most uh, prominent one that comes to mind, is that Hillsong pastor in New York. He got caught up in some kind of scandal. He cheated on his wife got involved with some drugs, this made like so much noise that I think Netflix picked it up as a documentary. Um, the, you know, this, this, whole, this whole scandal involving this Hillsong pastor. And I've, I've not seen it, but from what I've heard, it's, it's, a lot of it's like kind of like a cheap shot at Christianity. And you can imagine kind of the outside world thinking to themselves, like what on earth is wrong with these people? Like what is going on here? Like they say they're one way, but all, all their, like a bunch of their leaders, they're, they're obviously not that. What's going on? It's damaging. This kind of hypocritical uh, behavior, this betrayal, uh, it's got a damaging effect. And Manasseh, the king that we're looking at today, is the epitome of this. He is the epitome of this hypocrisy. He's the epitome of betrayal. He's the chief example of this. Manasseh was not only part of the visible community of God's people, Right, he was part of the chosen people of Israel, he's not only part of that community, he was their king, right? He was supposed to lead them in faithfulness, he was supposed to be a covenant keeper, he was supposed to know the law and help his people be faithful. So he was king, he was supposed to be a good example, um, and, and just think about this. like think about who his dad was. All right, we read that his dad was Hezekiah. You guys remember what Hezekiah experienced? Remember what we talked about last week? Remember during Hezekiah's rule, the whole city of Jerusalem was s- surrounded by the Assyrian army. There was no way for them to escape. There was no hope that they were going to walk away from that situation unscathed. Like it was, it was done. They were going down. But God stepped in and rescued them. He saved them. They had a hopeless situation, but he saved them. So this guy had firsthand experience of a legit miracle. Like he saw God work redemptively. But he turned his back. He betrayed The God that was faithful to him. And of course, as we read, because of this, he is so well-deserving of judgment. Didn't matter who he was. Didn't matter that he was king. Didn't matter what he had seen. Didn't matter who his parents were. Didn't matter that he was part of this visible community of God's people. Betrayal results in judgment. The same thing applies for us. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter what your position is, what your title is. It doesn't matter if you grew up in the church. It doesn't matter if your parents are Christians. It doesn't matter if you raise your hands in worship or keep your hands in your pockets during worship. It doesn't matter the kind of mountaintop experience that you've had. Betraying the Lord will result in judgment. That's why in, in, in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, Peter says that judgment begins at the house of the Lord. Betrayal results in judgment. Or put another way, our main idea this morning. More specifically, we can say that betraying the Creator ends in decreation. And I want to use this word decreation. Uh, Because this is the imagery that we see in this text. You know, decreation, this is just another word for destruction. It's another word for death. It is an undoing of what God has done. Betraying the Creator ends in decreation. Now, this morning, we have four points that come from the text. So my my mind is short circuiting here a little bit. Um, But four points one, the betrayal of authority. The betrayal of relationships. So these first two points obviously they deal with the way that Judah and Manasseh had betrayed the Lord, and then the last two points deal with God's response to this betrayal. And we see two aspects of this response, and uh, spoiler alert here: both of these responses involve judgment. Like you're not escaping judgment here. God doesn't just set aside His judgment. He doesn't be, he's not one way in the Old Testament and then becomes an entirely different way in the New Testament. No, both responses involve judgment, but there is something hidden, something hidden in God's judgment that points us to the hope we have in Jesus Christ. We just gotta pay attention until we get there. All right, so let's keep going. Point number one, the betrayal of authority. Uh, In verses 1 through 9, in uh, 2 Kings chapter 21, here we have the record of Judah and Manasseh's sin against the Lord. We have the record of their betrayal. Um, A lot of bad things recorded here. But uh, I want to call our attention to the way that this section is arranged. There's a really intentional structure that the author uses to present his information here. So we can uh, look at the next screen. This is what we would call a concentric pattern. So you have the the two A points, they correspond with one another, and then the two B points, and then you have the C points. So it's A, B, C, B, A. So uh, at the beginning and at the end of this passage, uh, we see the phrase that the people did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to the nations around them. We see that they compromised. They became like the nations around them. You take one step in and we get a reference to evil in the land and evil in the temple. So they, they multiplied their idols in the land and in the temple. And then at the center of the structure where uh, the author's trying to focus our attention, which is why I've all capped that. Um, Where where the author's trying to focus our attention, we see that Manasseh burned his son, right? This is the heart of his evil. Uh, This is the end result of compromise. Compromise leads to corruption which leads to depravity, which is pictured right here in this wicked act where Manasseh burns his son as an offering to a pagan god. I mean, just a terrible, evil thing to do. I mean, I cannot think of something that is more unnatural than that. Killing your own child. see, Manasseh chose death. Manasseh chose decreation. He undid all the good that his father had done by spreading idolatry throughout the land, so he undid that. Okay, he undid God's order for worship in the temple, and then he undid the, the life of his own son. He chose decreation. Now, it might seem kind of... Uh, weird or interesting that in the center here with this reference to his the son that he killed we also get um, talk of mediums and necromancers now mediums and necromancers that's like like weird stuff that we probably don't want to deal with but it's like not it's not nearly as bad as killing your own son so why is that included here Well, this is included because it shows us like the tragic irony of what's going on in the life of Manasseh. You see, Manasseh traded a living son. He traded a living son to associate himself with a religion and rituals that deal with the dead. Mediums and necromancers try to communicate with the dead. They do rituals for the dead. They do sacrifices for the dead he took his living son and he traded that also that he might have the opportunity to associate himself with the dead. It's a tragic irony. Now, some of you may have already picked up on how this is, share some similarities with our culture are right, some similarities between the culture that was around Judah and, and uh, the culture that we have in America, even in Japan. You see, we live or we come from a culture that zealously tells as many women as possible that it is a good thing to trade a living child to abort a viable, healthy pregnancy. For what? Call it family planning. I mean, really, that's just another word for convenience. It's just another take on convenience. Like trading a healthy pregnancy for the possibility that you might be able to become more materially prosperous before you want to have a kid. You know this, I, I think we make a huge mistake when we think that this is just a like political issue. And I don't care what side you choose politically, this is not a political issue. You can be red, blue, purple, green, orange, whatever political banner you want. And this is not a political issue. This is a betrayal of the creator It's choosing death, it's choosing decreation over what God has given. It is undoing what God has done. Now, I also want to be super clear here that I am not here uh, to heap condemnation on you if that has been your experience or if you know someone who's gone through that. Right? If, if you have experienced that that is part of your life, uh, I want you to know that there is abundant, an abundance of grace and mercy in Jesus Christ. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us in Christ Jesus. Okay, we don't want to heap condemnation on you. We want to be the church family that embraces you and loves you and walks with you through this Tragic experience. Really what I want us all to see and what I want us all to think about is what the text challenges us with. It shows us that compromise, compromising with the culture, inviting the culture, the values of the culture into your heart, into your life, leads to corruption, which then leads to depravity. There is a danger associated with compromise. Compromising with the culture. There's no such thing as a neutral culture. American culture is not a neutral culture. There are evil people and evil forces at work in every single part of the world. No such thing as a neutral culture. So we cannot compromise church. So where have you invited that in? Where have you invited compromise into your life? Is it in the websites that you visit? Is it in the apps that you have? The way that you present yourself on social media? The way that you think about money? The way that you think about sex? Where have you invited compromise into your life? The danger with compromise is that it will lead to depravity, it will lead to betrayal and betrayal. As we know, ends in decreation. All right, this brings us to our second point. Uh, we saw that the the people of Judah they they rejected God's order for worship, right? They uh, brought foreign idols into the temple. Um, but this is really indicative of a bigger kind of problem. All right, they obviously did evil in doing that, but this is this is indicative of a relational betrayal. It's a betrayal against the God who had set his love upon these people. Or he placed his name among them. The temple was not just like a religious institution, a place to go do your sacrifices and check all the boxes. No, in the temple, God's purpose to dwell with his people was manifested. The temple was a picture of, of God's relational presence, not not a religious institution. The temple was all about God's relational presence among his people. This was the place that he set his name. This was the place that showed all the world that these were his people and that they were special to him and that they were beloved. But that wasn't enough. That wasn't enough for them. They Made altars, high places. They put a bunch of idols in the temple and in the land. You see, what they did is they treated God like he was just another idol, just one option among a bunch of other options. They turned their backs on him by looking at him as if he were an idol to be manipulated. The book of Jeremiah was written written a little bit later than the account that we see here of Manasseh's life. But there's a part of it that really captures the attitude that the people of Judah had about the temple during this time. So in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 9, Jeremiah indicts, he's indicting the people. He says... Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known? And then come and stand before me in this house, that is the temple, which is called by my name, and say to yourselves, we are delivered. Now that was their attitude about the temple, that as long as they had the temple, the temple of the Lord, as long as they had it, They were going to be okay. They were going to be saved. It was like their get out of jail free card. Now, why would they have thought about the temple that way? Well, you remember what we learned last week? Remember their history? Remember how they were surrounded by their enemies? They were going to get crushed. Yet God saved Jerusalem for his own sake. He intervened when they had no hope left. So they thought to themselves, man, as long as we have the temple, no one can touch us. We're going to be okay. Their sinful hearts looked at God's redemptive work and took it as an excuse to presume upon the grace of God. Their sinful hearts turned a relationship with God. They turned his relational presence into nothing more than fire insurance. Nothing more than a, than, a, than a transaction. All right, we see this too in, in contemporary Christian culture. Right, pray a prayer and you're good. With the prosperity preachers, right, sow a seed, reap a harvest. That means give us some money and then God's gonna multiply your investment. It's, a, it's being used, God is... It's treating God like he can be something to be used. Have you guys ever been used by someone? Does it feel good? No, maybe someone's used you to kind of try to wiggle wiggle their way into a better role or a better position or promotion or gain reputation, whatever it is, being used. Like we all, we can just feel that it's wrong. It doesn't matter who you are. If you betray God's relationship, it will end in decreation. Church, Jesus is not a get-out-of-jail-free card. He's not fire insurance. He's not a Hail Mary. He is a faithful Savior, King, and Friend who is to be worshipped and glorified. We're not saved because we pray to prayer We're not saved because um, our parents went to church or because we follow the rules or because we're a member at a particular church. We're not saved because we've been baptized or because we've had some sort of mountaintop experience. The only reason that we are saved is because we have a relationship with our faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to God's response last two points here God's response we see it in uh, verses 10 through 15 in 2nd Kings chapter 21 here we have God's response to their rebellion to their betrayal and in a word God's response is judgment it's a disaster destruction Let's read verses uh, 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can look with me at 2 Kings 21, verses 12 through 14. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. And I will forsake the remnant of my heritage and give them into the hand of their enemies and they shall become a prey and a spoil to their enemies." God's response is that he's going to send them into exile. This is a, a judgment about the exile that Judah is going to experience, All right? He made them a nation. They, they chose to undo that. So he's making them no longer a nation, All right? He's undoing, they're undoing that work. They've undone it. And this judgment Of destruction is entirely just it is entirely righteous we see the imagery being used of a measuring line or a plumb line now we're probably not super familiar with that a measuring line is an ancient tool it's like a level an ancient tool used uh, to show whether or not a foundation was was steady whether it was crooked you can see a picture of it here Made sure the foundation and the walls were straight. So the idea here, the picture here, is that God has lined his people up against the measuring line of his perfect justice. And what does he see? They have a bad foundation. They're crooked, they're twisted. The only thing that can be done with them now is they must be destroyed. The point here is that God's judgment, he doesn't just judge people because he likes it. No, judgment comes from justice. It comes from his good character. And again, this judgment is pictured in decreation. Just think about the contrast between uh, what God had promised and done for his people and what's going on here in this passage. God had promised to dwell with his people in the temple. Now the temple is going to be destroyed. God had saved Jerusalem for his own sake. Now it will be emptied. God had promised them a land forever. Now they're going to be taken out of the land. They're going to be exiled. God had said that they were chosen above all peoples. Now they are going to be forsaken. God responds to betrayal with justice. And that's the right thing. All right, that that is the right response. Because if you betray God, then you've betrayed everything that is good. But here's the thing about God's justice. Even God's justice... God is merciful. God is not just like, you know, when we think about the Old and the New Testament, like a mistake that we can make is we think that God is like 90% just and 10% merciful in the Old Testament. And then when we get to the New Testament, that kind of flips. In the New Testament, God's 90% merciful and 10% just. But God is always 100%. Of everything that he is and we see this come out clearly in 2nd Chronicles chapter 33 so 2nd Chronicles like the book of Kings what we're in right now it's a it's a history of the kings of Judah except the book of Kings you can think of it being more written from like the perspective of a husband he's just getting straight to the point 2nd Chronicles has a bunch of details that you wouldn't know otherwise Right? like So when your wife shares a story, um, at least my experience, is that she's including a lot more detail than I am. Me, I'm just like, let's just get to the, to the point. You know, how was your hangout last night? It was good. We had a cigar. It was awesome. And then her, on the other hand, you know, all, all sorts of details that I didn't know I needed to have. So 2 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles chapter 33. You can turn with me there. It'll also be on the screen. 2 Chronicles 33 verses 10 through 13. Again, we're talking about Manasseh. This is another account of Manasseh. The Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they paid no attention. Therefore, the Lord brought upon them the commanders of the army of the king of Assyria who captured Manasseh with hooks and bound him with chains of bronze and brought him to Babylon. And when he was in distress, he entreated the favor of the Lord, his God, and humbled himself greatly before the God of his father's. He prayed to him, and God was moved by his entreaty and heard his plea and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord was God. The result of God's judgment being poured out upon Manasseh was that he knew the Lord. At the beginning, in verse 10, the the prophet says that the people and Manasseh, they ignored the Lord. At the end, what do we see? That he knew God. What happened in between? Distress, judgment, suffering. Even in God's judgment, he makes a way for his people to turn back to him. He uses that judgment in a way that is merciful. You know, uh, some of us might be familiar with the verse in Romans, in Romans chapter two, where Paul says that God's kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. What we see here is that it is, sometimes it is God's kindness to bring the full weight of the consequences that we deserve upon our own heads. We can't always see it. We can't always see that mercy in his judgment and in our distress, but it is there. God is just and he is merciful all the time, 100%. I have a beloved brother here, and he shared at the men's retreat, he shared an experience that was embarrassing shameful, an, uh, an experience that would have seemed like judgment and distress. But God used that experience. He used that judgment in his life to completely turn his life around. God's mercy from our perspective is hidden in his judgment, but it is present. All right, final point here. The last... The last thing that we see being veiled in God's judgment is his patience. In verse 14, so back in in the book of Kings. In verse 14, God says that he's going to forsake the remnant of his heritage. How is he going to forsake them? Well, he's going to send them off into exile. He's going to destroy their nation. He's going to destroy their temple. He's sending them away. But here's here's the funny thing about that. Here's where you begin to to scratch your head. You guys think back to Moses. You remember Moses? You think back to Moses. In Moses' last address to Israel, in his final address, in his final speech to the nation of Israel, he told them that the Lord will never leave you or forsake you which is not what we see here, is it, right? God says, I'm going to forsake them. God is perfectly just. That means he's 100% just all the time, hence the exile. But he's also perfectly faithful. He's 100% faithful all the time. So how on earth does this work? Well, we see it work in their exile. Let's look at Ezekiel, chapter 11, verse 16. Okay, Ezekiel was a prophet who wrote to the people of Judah during their exile. They were in a foreign country, they were in Babylon. He's writing these words to them as they're sitting in their exile. He says, therefore, thus says the Lord God, though I have removed them far off among the nations and though I have scattered them among the countries, Yet I have been a sanctuary to them for a while in the countries where they have gone. So God has destroyed their nation. He's destroyed their temple. He's destroyed their sanctuary in their land. He's destroyed the temple. But what has he done? He's gone with them into their judgment. He went with them went into their distress. He went into their suffering. He was with them the whole time. So he he didn't really forsake them. He only forsook them geographically, you could say. Here's what we need to understand. The judgment spoken of here in the book of Kings, it was partial, it was incomplete, it was geographic. God geographically forsook his people by sending them into exile. The forsakenness of exile was an incomplete consequence. You see, God held back the fullness of his judgment. He held back the fullness of his wrath against sin until the right time. Until the time that he chose to deal with it himself. Look with me at Romans chapter three verses 24 and 25, which says, "And we are justified by His, that is Christ's grace, as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus." whom God put forward as a propitiation, that is an atoning sacrifice by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. In his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Now, what on earth does that mean? It means that God waited to express the fullness of his wrath. He waited to pour out this judgment of forsakenness until he could pour it out on his own son. God expressed divine forbearance until the arrival of Jesus Christ. The forsakenness of the exile was partial, geographic, and incomplete. The forsakenness that Jesus experienced was spiritual. It was full, right? He drank the full cup of God's wrath and it was final. It was a forsakenness that led to death. And it was entirely undeserved. In every thought, moment, and action, Jesus was without sin. Yet he willingly gave up his life, he willingly experienced the fullness of God's wrath to save a bunch of traitors. We have all betrayed God. God in his grace has restrained our evil so that we're not as wicked as Manasseh, but we've all betrayed God's authority. We've all betrayed God's relationship. We've all treated God like he's someone to be used. God is perfectly just and he is perfectly faithful, which means that he is also perfectly patient. He is perfectly patient to work out salvation for all who would trust in him. God waited until just the right time to pay for sin. And he is freely offering the full satisfaction of that payment for any who would look to Jesus Christ in faith. He is offering this now, But this offer will not last forever. He is offering the forgiveness found in Jesus Christ until at just the right time, Christ will return. The king will return. This time not to make payment for sin, but to execute justice on sin. He will take vengeance on all who have betrayed their creator. So, church, God has responded to your betrayal. How will you respond to him? Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for the incredible grace and mercy that you offer to us in the sacrifice of your beloved son, Jesus. God, thank you for his willing obedience to go to the cross. God, thank you for your mercy and your patience with us. Thank you that you express your mercy, even when we are suffering, even in our distress, even in the judgment that we deserve. Father, we praise you. We look to you. We love you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.